The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled An Exploration of Advances in the Diagnosis and Management of Irritable Bowel Syndrome and Chronic Idiopathic Constipation in a Unique Era of Patient Care, incorporating an individualized approach to help your patients find relief. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash CYP 860. Downloadable practice aids are also available. Hello, I'm Brooks Cash. I'm a gastroenterologist from the University of Texas McGovern Medical School and Health Science Center in Houston, Texas. Welcome to this educational activity entitled An Exploration of Advances in the Diagnosis and Management of Irritable Bowel Syndrome and Chronic Idiopathic Constipation in a Unique Era of Patient Care, Incorporating an Individualized Approach to Help Your Patients Find Relief. First, I'm going to give you an overview of the burden and pathogenesis of irritable bowel syndrome and chronic idiopathic constipation and discuss strategies for diagnosing these conditions. So this is part one. As mentioned, we're going to examine the burden of IBS and CIC and we'll talk about how we diagnose these patients. Now in terms of the burden in epidemiology as well, The estimated prevalence of irritable bowel syndrome is between 5 and 11% of the U.S. population. This is a condition that typically affects women more than men, about 2 to 1, and it also typically affects younger patients with a mean age of less than 50 in terms of symptom onset. The direct medical costs of IBS are substantial, anywhere from $1.5 up to $10 billion per year. And when we factor in indirect costs, the cost of missing work or school or being less productive, those costs can double or even triple. There's also a significant impact in terms of quality of life decrements in patients who have irritable bowel syndrome symptoms. There's been several studies that have shown that patients would actually trade 10 to 15 years of their life for an instant cure for IBS. Another study actually showed that patients would accept a 1% chance of death for a curative medication. That gives us an idea of just how affected these patients are in terms of their gastrointestinal symptoms. Now let's hear from Johanna, an IBS patient, who will describe the impact that her chronic gastrointestinal symptoms have had on her life. So um, I lost a tremendous amount of weight. Um, I was in constant pain. Uh, abdominal pain. Um, It really didn't matter at what time of day. Um, It was always there and then it would amp up and get worse by evening time. Um, I I had chronic diarrhea. I mean, just constant diarrhea and it was really um, impactful on my quality of life. I adjusted my life around my symptoms. I made sure that I had mapped out where the restrooms were on my commute um, in case I needed to make a quick, quick dash into a bathroom. Um, I carried extra clothes with me in the car. I had a heating pad at my desk. Um, I tried to do everything that I knew to do to try and keep my symptoms as manageable as possible. Um, But there were still times that I still had to call in to work. I had to rely on others to take my kids to sporting events or practices. And um, most weekends were spent just trying to recover from the week. So I was missing a lot of time with my family and with my husband. Of course, when you have IBS and you're in chronic abdominal pain and you have bowel um, dysfunction, um, you know, intimacy is definitely affected. So that was also um, a problem for me as well. Um, and, And I just started to feel really 
hopeless. Like this is what my life had become and this continued for 10 years. Now the causes of irritable bowel syndrome are multiple. We have patients who have abnormal motility in terms of their gastrointestinal tract. That can result in constipation or diarrhea or both. Now another hallmark of irritable bowel syndrome is the concept of visceral hypersensitivity. The neurons of the GI tract in patients with IBS can be hypersensitive and that accounts, we believe, for the majority of the abdominal pain that these patients experience. There may be a genetic predisposition. We do see family kindreds who have a history of irritable bowel syndrome. Psychosocial factors certainly can play a role, as well as inflammation and immune dysregulation, alterations in the gut microbiome. And we're starting to increase our knowledge with regards to maldigestion and malabsorption syndromes and the very important role of diet in the generation of IBS symptoms. Now let's talk about the diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome as well as chronic idiopathic constipation. These are the clinical criteria that we use to diagnose irritable bowel syndrome. Now these criteria were designed for clinical research and we have extrapolated them, borrowed them, and placed them into clinical practice. These criteria were created by a committee of experts more than 25 or 30 years ago and they are continuously updated about every five to seven years. They're called the Rome criteria. And the most recent iteration or version of the criteria are the Rome 4 criteria. For irritable bowel syndrome, the Rome 4 criteria require a patient to have recurrent abdominal pain at least one day out of a week on average for the last three months. And that pain should be associated with at least two of the following features. Related to defecation, associated with a change in the stool frequency, and or a change in the stool form. And these criteria should be fulfilled for the last three months with symptom onset at least six months prior to the diagnosis. So that gives an idea and a flavor for some chronicity with regards to these patients' symptoms. Now we subtype irritable bowel syndrome into three major categories. And this is based on what we call the rule of 25%, which refers to the stool form at least 25% of the time. You can see on the chart, patients with irritable bowel syndrome with constipation have a constipated stool form, a type one or two, according to the Bristol stool form scale, at least 25% of the time. And they have loose or watery or diarrheal stools less than 25% of the time. The converse is true for patients with irritable bowel syndrome with diarrhea. They have loose or watery stool at least 25% of the time with defecation and they have constipated stool less than 25% of the time with defecation. And then there's also a group in the middle that we call IBS-M or mixed IBS. And these patients will experience both forms of extreme stool form at least 25% of the time. This is also shown over on the right with regards to that 25% rule. Uh, so three major clinical subtypes, IBS-C with constipation, IBS-D, diarrhea, and IBS-M mixed. And we generally think of this as being divided into about a third, a third, and a third uh, with regards to irritable bowel syndrome patients. Of course, individual practices and prevalences can vary. Now let me show you the Rome 4 criteria for chronic idiopathic constipation. These are very similar to the criteria that we would use for IBS with constipation. The main difference here is the absence of abdominal pain as a cardinal 
symptom in patients with CIC. That is not to say that patients with chronic idiopathic constipation can't have abdominal pain. It's not their primary complaint. The remainder of the symptoms, when we think about CIC versus IBS with constipation, are very similar. They are the same defecatory symptoms that patients complain about with constipation. Straining at the stool, lumpier hard stools, that Bristol stool form scale type one or two stool a sensation of incomplete evacuation or anal rectal obstruction, even having to use manual maneuvers to facilitate defecation. And you see on the far right, less than three defecations per week. And those are spontaneous defecations without the use of a laxative. And you'll notice that that infrequency is actually shown out to the far right for a reason. It's not the most important symptom to patients. When you query patients about chronic constipation, they usually will report more of these somatosensory or um, qualitative types of symptoms. So patients need at least two of those symptoms to fit into the criteria for having CIC. Remember, they don't have abdominal pain as a primary symptom associated with these symptoms. Loose stool should be present rarely uh, without laxative use, and patients should not meet IBS criteria. Same rules with regards to chronicity in terms of symptom onset and how frequently patients are experiencing symptoms. So five key features I wanna to convey to you with regards to the diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome. The first and most important is taking a good clinical history, seeing if patients fulfill those Rome criteria but also assessing their medical comorbidities as well as their surgical history, their dietary habits. Do they have psychological issues or conditions? Are they on psychological therapies? And also very important is to exclude what we call alarm signs or alarm features. We'll go into that a little bit more, but these are features that would make us think more about an organic gastrointestinal disease, such as inflammatory bowel disease or celiac disease, or even something like colon cancer. Physical exam is very important in these patients, especially a digital rectal examination that should be part of every physical exam of these patients, especially our patients with constipation. As I mentioned, we like to try to apply the Rome criteria. There are people who will end up with a diagnosis of IBS who don't fit neatly into those criteria. So we don't live and die by those criteria, but they are quite helpful in terms of identifying patients with irritable bowel syndrome. We generally recommend making a positive diagnosis, meaning a symptom-based diagnosis, not an exclusionary diagnosis. This is a common fallacy with regards to irritable bowel syndrome, that it is an ex a, di a diagnosis of exclusion. That is not true. We do recommend some limited diagnostic testing, in essence, to rule out alarm features in the case of a CBC to look for anemia. And when clinically indicated, if there are alarm features or abnormalities or patients are not responding appropriately to therapy, then some diagnostic testing may be needed in those patients. Here are the alarm features that I alluded to before, and you can use this both for patients with chronic constipation as well as irritable bowel syndrome. This is not meant to be an all-inclusive list, but if patients do endorse these symptoms or these signs or, or features, then it may increase our pretest probability for an organic gastrointestinal disease, and we may need to do some directed testing to exclude those diseases. Unintentional weight loss, at least 10% of body, body weight over the last three months. Blood in the stools, hematochesia, not caused by hemorrhoids or anal fissures. 
New symptom onsets in an older patient, and, uh, the age that we typically use for a cutoff, and this is somewhat pragmatic because of colon cancer screening ages, is age 50. Symptoms that awaken patients at night, typically that would be abdominal pain or possibly diarrhea. Fever, anemia, palpable masses, ascites, or lymphadenopathy on physical exam. Rectal bleeding, as mentioned before. A family history of colorectal cancer or inflammatory bowel disease or celiac disease or even another organic gastrointestinal disease or abnormal labs or imaging. And one of the lab tests that we frequently will get is a CBC to look for anemia. And there are several other laboratory values that are recommended for some patients with a diarrheal subtype of irritable bowel syndrome, thinking about celiac disease or perhaps looking for markers of inflammation. So here's our differential diagnosis to patients with irritable bowel syndrome with diarrhea. That is a broader differential diagnosis. When we think about infections and inflammation and maldigestion, than somebody experiencing constipation symptoms. So these are the things that we should be thinking about when we're evaluating these patients and taking a very focused history to try and identify any features that may increase our suspicion with regards to some of these organic gastrointestinal diseases. But you can see it's a mixture of malabsorptive, maldigestive, inflammatory conditions. Even medications can cause some of these symptoms. And there's also a significant number of comorbid conditions such as GERD or dyspepsia, what we used to call indigestion. TMJ syndrome or fibromyalgia, migraine headaches, and even dyspareunia in patients who are presenting with irritable bowel syndrome symptoms. And we believe that a lot of those, those comorbidities come from that visceral hypersensation or hypersensitivity that these patients experience. Now here's uh, some hopefully helpful information with regards to some recent recommendations. This is from the American Gastroenterological Association. This is their guideline statement with regards to laboratory evaluations for patients with irritable bowel syndrome, with diarrhea specifically. Of course, we exclude alarm features as we've already mentioned. We take a good history with regards to medications, family history, surgical history. Have patients traveled recently, especially to endemic areas where they are more prone to develop a gastroenteritis? We need to think about infectious causes if patients have recently traveled. Are they immune suppressed? Are they at risk for any infections? Or have they started any new medicines? Or did their symptoms start after starting any new medicines? If the answer to any of those is yes, then it's recommended you do a directed physical exam as well as laboratory evaluation, which may even include endoscopy in those patients. If the answer is no, which it will be in many patients who are presenting with IBS with diarrhea, then the AGA does recommend some diagnostic testing. They recommend that we do a stool test for a Giardia antigen. That's the mo one of the most common protozoal infections in the United States. They also recommend that we do a blood test for celiac disease. Remember, that's an allergy or an intolerance to gluten. And the best test to do is a tissue transglutaminase test along with a total IgA. Conditional recommendations from the AGA for patients with IBS with diarrhea symptoms are to consider testing for fecal bile acids, as well as to think about doing a fecal test looking for inflammation. And there are two that we commonly use, a fecal calprotectin or a fecal lactoferrin. Only one of those is necessary if you decide to do those tests, and that is looking for inflammatory bowel disease or other inflammatory conditions of the colon. And you'll also see on the far right that the AGA no longer recommends doing 
serology markers for inflammation, so a sed sedimentation rate or CRP, nor do they recommend doing stool, ova, and parasite exam in the absence of a relevant travel history. With IBSM, it's a very similar differential to IBS with diarrhea. So thinking about those inflammatory markers, thinking about checking for celiac disease, thinking about looking for even overflow diarrhea from chronic constipation. And that's what that abdominal plain film recommendation comes from. Because remember, these patients are going to be experiencing both diarrhea as well as constipation. There's also a biomarker that has been evaluated for patients with irritable bowel syndrome, and there really are no established biomarkers. But this is a fascinating bit of science that uh, has really shed some light with regards to the potential origins of some patients' IBS. This biomarker is a biomarker or a test that is designed to look for autoimmunity after a gastrointestinal infection. And the concept here is that there's an auto, a couple of autoantibodies that form in response to an infection with common bacterial infections such as E. coli, Campylobacter, Shigella, or even Salmonella. And those autoantibodies can affect gastrointestinal motility, setting the stage for a microbiome or alteration or dysbiosis, which can then lead to the symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome, especially, we believe, IBS with diarrhea. So while this is not widely performed and there's still more investigation that needs to occur, we are getting closer to understanding, at least for some patients, the origins of their IBS symptoms and being able, hopefully, to deliver uh, really targeted therapy for those patients. Another concept that we often will use for patients with irritable bowel syndrome symptoms is breath testing. We can do this looking for uh, infection. Uh, such as small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Now more commonly, we're actually thinking about doing these for patients looking for carbohydrate maldigestion. So carbohydrates such as lactose or sucrose or starches like uh, isomaltose. Those are very complex, can be complex sugars that our bodies don't digest very well, but the microbiome do, and we can do some breath testing to look for patients who may have an intolerance to those common dietary constituents. And so, again, an area of emerging evaluation, not necessarily due to every patient that we have to evaluate, but something for us to think about with regards to some of our patients. And what we've also recognized is that the pattern of abnormal breath tests can predict the stool form in some patients with irritable bowel syndrome. We note that patients who have hydrogen-producing bacteria, uh, that's indicative of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and has an association with diarrhea as well as hydrogen sulfide. The outlier here is patients who have methanogen or methane-producing uh, organisms. We call these archaea. They're actually not bacteria. And these patients actually have a condition called small intestinal methanogen overgrowth, and that's associated with constipation. So we're starting to understand a bit more with regards to the microbiome indirectly through these tests and the role of digestion, food, and the microbiome in generating some IBS symptoms in our patients. So let's go over some key takeaways with regards to diagnosing IBS and chronic idiopathic constipation. These are syndromes that are described by their symptoms. They have multiple different causes. Every patient's slightly different. There's no gold standard biomarker for these diagnoses. So the diagnoses are based on clinical criteria. 
Irritable bowel syndrome with constipation is differentiated from chronic constipation by the primacy or centrality of abdominal pain associated with altered bowel habits. And we do re recommend using the Rome criteria, current version Rome 4, for making these diagnoses in the clinic, recognizing that they are not perfect, but they are very helpful. Important to take that clinical history that we described, do that physical exam, including the digital rectal examination, and we do recommend making a positive diagnosis using minimal but judicious laboratory testing or perhaps even endoscopic testing in patients who fit the criteria based on the absence or presence of alarm features. So in our second part, let's take a guided tour of the clinical evidence for managing IBSD. IBSC and chronic idiopathic constipation. So the treatment of these conditions really depends on their severity. When patients present who have mild or even moderate symptoms, we can start with traditional over-the-counter and even lifestyle modifications. If those don't work or if patients present with more severe symptoms that are causing a more significant quality of life decrement or impact on their lives, then we need to start thinking about using prescription therapies and maybe even specialty referral or psychological therapies. Again, every treatment for every patient is slightly different. The etiologies of these conditions are different for each patient. So we have to really take a very global view of these patients. So let's talk first about these dietary and over-the-counter therapies that we can use for irritable bowel syndrome that have been used in the past and that are currently being used. This includes a low FODMAP diet. We believe that constituents of a FODMAP diet, and this stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. Those constituents can be important causes of IBS symptoms, especially abnormal bowel habits, bloating, and abdominal pain. These are generally poorly digested carbohydrates uh, that are very common in a Western diet. You'll also have some patients who decide to go gluten-free and they are sure that they have gluten sensitivity and some of them do have gluten sensitivity. Very few of them, probably less than 1%, will actually have celiac disease, but there is a, con a condition called non-celiac gluten sensitivity. I prefer to use the term non-wheat gluten sensitivity, but these patients notice that when they eat grains that they will develop unpleasant abdominal symptoms that can mimic IBS. And there's also been some interest in looking at actual food antigens and developing very patient-specific restriction diets. Based on that, there's some recent research that shows some promise in that area, although it's not widely recommended at this time. The low FODMAP diet by far is the most popular dietary approach. This is a diet that got its start in Australia and it's really spread throughout the world. There is emerging research and what I'm showing you on this is a meta-analysis that shows that it can work in some patients for their overall gastrointestinal symptoms of IBS and also for their symptoms of abdominal pain. Now, in this meta-analysis, the summary odds ratio demonstrated a 31% clinical improvement, and that translated into a number needed to treat relative to uh, its comparators, whether it was education or even placebo, of about five. Now, that level of improvement's not generally seen in clinical practice, so there may be a publication bias here, but this still can be a useful diet for patients to undertake. There are several important things that we need to recognize when we recommend implementation of a low FODMAP diet. The first is that this is not meant to be a permanent diet. This is a full restriction, 
early on, that's usually four to six weeks, then it is followed by gradual reintroduction of different types of food that fit into that FODMAP acronym. The other important thing to recognize is that we really need to employ our registered dietitians who know much more about this condition and, and these concepts than we do. Uh, and finally, think about patients and avoidant and restrictive food intake disorder. This is a more politically correct term that we used to call eating disorders, but there is some recent research suggesting that going on a low FODMAP diet may actually increase the risk of developing ARFID, or many patients who are re recommended for a low FODMAP diet or may even do it on their own have already developed an avoidant and restrictive food intake disorder. These are, can be screened for with some simple uh, screening tools, but do think about that in patients who you're considering using dietary therapy. Now, let's also talk about fiber. This is a very effective over-the-counter or lifestyle modification therapy that we use in patients who have constipation. It doesn't work all that well for patients with diarrhea, although some reports suggest that it can help normalize stool form, but we tend to think of this as a constipation therapy. There's byproducts of digestion. There may be some uh, increase in short-chain fatty acid production changes in motility. So fiber is actually a very complex over-the-counter therapy that we often will use. The key to fiber in patients with constipation is to use soluble fiber. Dietary fiber is not all that effective. A lot of it is crude fiber and crude fiber can actually increase uh, abdominal symptoms in some patients, especially those with bloating and IBS-like symptoms. So soluble fiber is the way to go. Let's look at polyethylene glycol. In this case, for chronic idiopathic constipation, this is a ubiquitous, very available over-the-counter therapy. It's basically bowel prep without the terrible taste. There have been several studies that have looked at polyethylene glycol for patients with chronic idiopathic constipation. The typical dose is 17 grams a day. And you can see it can work remarkably well in terms of improving constipation symptoms and multiple constipation symptoms. Spontaneous bowel movements, straining, incomplete defecation, the frequency of bowel movements, and global satisfaction. What we found with polyethylene glycol, however, is it doesn't seem to have the same degree of efficacy for irritable bowel syndrome with constipation, and that's because it has not been shown to improve abdominal pain in these patients. So while PEG can be helpful for patients with chronic idiopathic constipation, if patients have IBS-C symptoms, complaining significantly of abdominal pain, it's not wrong to use PEG, but you shouldn't expect their abdominal pain symptoms to get dramatically better. One therapy that has shown some promise for abdominal pain is peppermint oil. This is another over-the-counter therapy. It's actually a first-line therapy in some of the European guidelines. Peppermint oil is thought to work primarily as a calcium channel blocker, so in many ways it's very akin to an antispasmodic. There are other mechanisms of action of peppermint oil or L-menthol, which is the active ingredient, including anti-pain effects, there may be anti-gas effects, and even perhaps anti-inflammatory or anti-infective effects with regards to their, its effect on the microbiome. Now, there was a recent meta-analysis of 12 randomized controlled trials of peppermint oil, nearly 1,000 patients included in this meta-analysis that did show significant improvement with peppermint oil compared to placebo for overall IBS symptoms and abdominal pain symptoms, with a number needed to treat of three for overall IBS symptoms and four for abdominal pain. 
Now let's move on to pharmacologic treatments. And there are a number of different therapies that we can use for constipation, whether it's IBS with constipation or chronic idiopathic constipation. And I'm showing you a lot of those therapies here. These are not all FDA approved for these indications. We often will use therapies that are not necessarily FDA approved for these conditions, but we are going to talk about the FDA approved therapies as we move forward. Now let's watch a short animation depicting the different mechanisms of action of the FDA approved therapies for IBS-C and CIC. Pharmacologic treatments for IBS-C and chronic idiopathic constipation include prosecretory agents that increase fluid in the gut, thus acting as stool lubricants and facilitating its evacuation. Treatments also include prokinetic agents that stimulate peristaltic muscle contractions to counteract GI hypomotility. Lubiprostone is a chloride channel activator, opening these channels on epithelial cells, resulting in increased intestinal fluid secretion. Linaclotide and placanotide activate guanylate cyclase C receptors found on intestinal epithelial cells, leading to production of CGMP, which activates the opening of multiple ion channels to induce fluid secretion. Tenapinor is a sodium hydrogen ion exchanger 3 inhibitor that prevents sodium absorption from the small intestine and colon, decreasing water and phosphate absorption from the gut so that water is retained in the colon. Finally, prucalopride binds to 5-HT4 receptors found on enteric nerves, activating a signaling cascade that facilitates gastrointestinal motility by stimulating peristaltic contractions. Now, here are the FDA-approved therapies for IBS-C and CIC. And you'll notice that several of these therapies are co-indicated for IBS-C or CIC. The important thing I want you to take away from this is that the doses for those indications might be slightly different. So we've got our prokinetic prucalopride indicated for CIC only, doses two milligrams once a day. We have our three secretagogues, lubiprostone, linaclotide, and placanotide. Remember how those work with regards to their mechanism of action. They bring fluid into the GI tract. The doses for lubiprostone and linaclotide are slightly different depending on whether you're treating IBS-C or CIC. The dose for placanotide is the same, three milligrams once daily. And then for IBS-C only, we have tenapinor, a sodium hydrogen exchange type three inhibitor at 50 milligrams a day. Let's show you the evidence with regards to some of these therapies, and we'll start with linaclotide. This depicts the results that we're seeing with linaclotide in the pivotal trials for IBS-C. You'll notice that it has about twice the level of efficacy compared to placebo at that 290 microgram dose. This endpoint is a somewhat complicated endpoint. It's a regulatory endpoint that the FDA requires, and it's going to be similar for many of the studies I'm going to show you. So when I use the words composite endpoint responder, what that means is a patient with IBS had at least a 30% improvement in their abdominal pain at the same time that they had a clinically meaningful improvement in their bowel habits. In the case of constipation, it's an increase in complete spontaneous bowel movements per week by at least one. In the case of diarrhea, it's a decrease in diarrheal stool form. So you can see about twice the rate of efficacy with regards to linaclotide and placebo. We also showed uh, in some improvement in this study looking at CIC with linaclotide. Remember, there are several doses for CIC, a 72 microgram dose, 145 as well for this indication. And it also showed improvement in multiple constipation symptoms. 
If we look at adverse events, it's really diarrhea that's going to stand out as the most common adverse event with regards to linaclotide. I mention this to my patients. I also ask my patients to try to stick with their therapy for at least five days or seven days. It's not uncommon for this diarrhea to get better over time with continued use. And a lot of the diarrhea that was reported in the clinical trials that were submitted to the FDA was a single episode of diarrhea. There is a discontinuation rate due to diarrhea in some patients. You can also see some of the other side effects that are listed here, but less common than the diarrhea. Now, placanotide, remember another GCC agonist, guanylate cyclase C agonist. This is approved for both conditions, IBSC and CIC at the same dose, three milligrams once a day. What I'm showing you here are the IBSC results. They used a similar endpoint, 30% improvement in pain and an increase by at least one complete spontaneous bowel movement for a certain number of weeks out of the trial. And you see that in two doses that were studied, three and six milligrams, there was superiority compared to placebo in these pivotal trials. CIC, same thing. We saw, again, improvement statistically significant improvement compared to placebo for patients who had an increase in complete spontaneous bowel movements for certain periods of time uh, during their studies. In this case, it was at least nine out of 12 weeks and at least three out of the last four weeks. And these were statistically significant differences, which is why this drug became FDA approved. It's well tolerated. The most common adverse event, similar to the other GCC agonist, is diarrhea. Uh, and we do recommend that patients be aware of this and that they try to stick with therapy, even if they experience some loose stool early on in therapy. Lubiprostone is a chloride channel activator still in the secretagogue group. This is their IBSC study. Remember, the dose here is eight micrograms twice a day, and that showed statistically significant benefit. The endpoint in this study was different. This is an older study. It was a much more rigorous endpoint, which is why these numbers are lower, we believe, compared to some of the other therapies. There are no head-to-head -head data looking at any of these drugs compared to each other, but there was statistical significance for IBSC as well as for CIC in terms of lubiprostone. In this case, the endpoint was the number of spontaneous bowel movements per week. And also you, we saw with these studies a significant improvement in multiple secondary symptoms that you can see listed down in the right. Side effects of lubiprostone include diarrhea, Nausea is an important side effect that we do need to be aware of. That tends to occur if patients take lubiprostone on an empty stomach, so they should take it in a fed state. Uh, when that is done, those nausea rates fall significantly. Abdominal pain and abdominal distension have also been reported, although uncommonly. So diarrhea and nausea are the two adverse events to really warn our patients about and make sure that they're taking this medicine with food when they use it. So let's look at prucalipride. This is a prokinetic therapy. It's a serotonin agonist, so it increases motility. This agent is an indicated only for CIC. Six pivotal trials have been done with prucalipride over the last decade or so. Five out of these six trials showed statistically significant benefit over placebo for their endpoint of at least three complete spontaneous bowel movements over a 12-week period. The sixth study, which did not show statistical significance, had an increased uh, placebo response rate that seemed to diminish that difference between active therapy and placebo. 
its adverse events includes headache, diarrhea, abdominal pain, and nausea. Again, the headache and the diarrhea often are transient, so try to have patients stick with that for at least a week before giving up. Tenapinor is the newest addition to our FDA-approved therapies, in this case for IBS with constipation. It was approved in 2019, and it's got a unique mechanism of action. It's a sodium hydrogen exchange type, exchanger type 3 inhibitor. And what that means is that it, it holds on to sodium in the gut lumen. It, present, it prevents the absorption of sodium from the gut. That traps water in the gut as well as phosphate. And there does appear to be pain modulation with tenapinor at the TRPV1 receptor as well. The dose of tenapinor that's been approved for IBSC is 50 milligrams twice a day. You can see some of the results with the variety of different doses. If you look to the far right, with that 60.7% complete spontaneous bowel movement responder rate compared to 33% with placebo, there was also a significant improvement in abdominal pain in patients randomized to tenapinor in their pivotal trials, and the drug is approved for IBS with constipation at that dose. In terms of adverse events, diarrhea is the primary adverse events that's been noted. This was an agent that just became marketed in April of 2022, so we're still gaining clinical experience with this agent in the clinic. So let's talk briefly about pharmacologic therapies for IBS with diarrhea. A similar list as I showed you earlier, not all of these therapies are FDA approved for IBS with diarrhea. Now we'll watch another short animation, in this case depicting the mechanisms of action of the FDA-approved therapies for IBS with diarrhea. Pharmacotherapies for IBS with diarrhea often improve patients' symptoms by slowing gastrointestinal transit and reducing abdominal pain. Alocitron is a 5-HT3 receptor antagonist that reduces gastrointestinal motility and secretion by inhibiting 5-HT3 activation. Eluxadiline effectively treats IBSD through activation of mu and kappa opioid receptors and antagonism of delta opioid receptors of the enteric nerves located in the GI tract. Mu and kappa opioid receptor agonism slows GI transit and reduces visceral pain, while delta opioid receptor antagonism attenuates the risk of mu opioid-induced constipation. Rifaximin is a poorly absorbed antibiotic that interferes with bacterial DNA transcription and is thought to modulate a disordered gut microbiome, reducing mucosal inflammation, bloating, and visceral hypersensitivity. But here are the three agents that are FDA approved for this indication. It includes an antibiotic, rifaximin. The dose for this indication, IBSD, is 550 milligrams three times a day for two weeks. If patients have recurrent symptoms, which they can over time, they can be retreated up to two additional times according to the package insert. Eluxadiline is a mixed opioid receptor modulator. Its dose is 100 milligrams twice a day taken with food. And then Elocitron is an antikinetic. It's a serotonergic antagonist. It slows motility, and that is a 0.5 milligrams twice a day starting dose and can be titrated up to one milligram twice a day. Let's look at the evidence for some of these therapies for IBS with diarrhea. Let's look at rifaximin for IBS with diarrhea. Now, this is a poorly absorbed antibiotic, and we believe its primary mechanism of action is to regulate or somehow alter 
a dysbiosis, primarily in the small intestine in patients with IBS with diarrhea. There have been multiple studies evaluating rifaximin for patients with IBS with diarrhea. I'm showing you two pivotal trials here, known as the target one and target two trials. These trials had two primary endpoints, adequate relief of global IBS symptoms and adequate relief of bloating. It's important to recognize that bloating is not a Rome 4 criteria symptom for irritable bowel syndrome, but it is a very common and bothersome symptom for patients, especially those with IBS with diarrhea. And what was seen in these studies was a 10% improvement relative to placebo with rifaximin for both of those endpoints. The other thing that was noted in these studies was that two out of three patients who initially responded gradually had recurrent symptoms. So that prompted investigators to do a third study with rifaximin. This third study was known as the Target 3 study. And this was specifically a study that was meant to evaluate the effects of repeat treatment in a, patients who had initially responded to rifaximin and yet had recurrent IBSD symptoms over time once that two-week course of rifaximin had been completed. And what these studies showed was that repeat treatment with the standard dosing regimen of rifaximin for IBS with diarrhea was an effective option compared to placebo for recurrent IBSD symptoms in these patients. In terms of use in the clinic, as I mentioned, the regimen is the same, whether it's initial treatment or repeat treatment. The package insert says that patients can be treated up to two additional times because that's what Target 3 looked at. You can see listed here the most common adverse events. This is a generally well-tolerated medication, but there can be uh, some hypersensitivity reactions. Those have been rarely reported. Uh, there does not appear to be a significant increased risk of C. difficile colitis, but as with any antibiotic, we do need to be aware of that potential adverse event. Let's talk about eluxadiline for IBS with diarrhea. This is an agent that is a mixed opioid receptor modulator. And what I mean by that is it has differential effects on three different opioid receptors, the mu, the kappa, and the delta receptors. The end result of that mixed opioid receptor modulation is to slow gastrointestinal transit, which then allows additional time for water to be reabsorbed. There also appears to be a pain modulating effect with regards to that, uh, that effect on the opioid receptors as well. When you look at the pivotal trials that were done with eluxadiline, it was studied in two different doses. There's a 75 milligram twice a day dose and a 100 milligram twice a day dose. The 100 milligram is the standard dosing form. And you can see looking at this graph that both of those doses were significantly better than placebo in most of these endpoints that we're looking at in two pivotal trials, as well as in the pooled data in patients with IBS with diarrhea. It's important to recognize for eluxadiline, probably because of its effect on opioid receptors that is contraindicated in patients who don't have a gallbladder or who have a history of pancreatic disease, including pancreatitis, or who are heavy alcohol users. There were some rare cases of pancreatitis that were noted during the clinical trials and even in post-marketing use. And there were cases of sphincter of OD spasm. In the clinical trials, all of those cases, there were eight of them, occurred in patients without gallbladders. So that's an important series of contraindications that you should be aware of for this agent. 
Finally, that brings us to Elocitron for IBS with diarrhea. As I mentioned earlier, this is a antikinetic therapy. It's a serotonergic antagonist. It's the oldest of the IBSD therapies that's FDA approved. Eight randomized controlled trials, more than 4,000 patients in these studies. And this agent has shown efficacy for the symptoms of IBS with diarrhea. It has a restricted indication for women who have not responded to traditional IBSD therapies, and its dosing is somewhat variable. It's 0.5 milligrams twice a day to start. That can be titrated up to one milligram twice a day. The, the primary adverse event that we see with elocitron is constipation. However, we should be aware that uh, rare instances of colonic ischemia have been reported with this agent. So we need to warn our patients about that and importantly, reevaluate our patients once therapy is started. Um, th these are carefully selected patients and this is generally thought of as a, a third line therapy uh, for IBS with diarrhea. Finally, I wanna talk about antidepressants and neuromodulators for irritable bowel syndrome. This is a concept that is not new for treating functional gastrointestinal disorders. And the use of antidepressants has been well studied. In fact, this is from a meta-analysis by uh, Alex Ford and colleagues, looked at 18 different randomized controlled trials, more than 1,000 patients, and that showed in general that antidepressants could help modulate especially abdominal pain, but overall GI symptoms in patients with irritable bowel syndrome in general. We tend to think of these therapies as primarily being used in patients with IBS with diarrhea, and that is true for the tricyclic antidepressants. That's the best studied group. But we also will use agents such as SNRIs, uh, even though they haven't been very well studied, in patients with all forms of irritable bowel syndrome, primarily targeting their abdominal pain. It's important to recognize that these agents can have some adverse effects, most notably drowsiness. We do recommend patients take tricyclic antidepressants in very low doses right before bed, and we're stocking basically about 25 to 50 milligrams, maybe even starting lower than that with some of the tricyclics, titrating up slowly over four to six week periods, and also tapering slowly if they're discontinued. But these can be effective therapies for uh, our patients with IBS, in especially in terms of help regulating their abdominal discomfort. So general approach to prescribing antidepressants in IBS, consider those specific symptoms as I mentioned. TCAs, tricyclic antidepressants, primarily used in IBS with diarrhea. SSRIs have been evaluated in patients with IBS with constipation. They've not been very well studied. Remember, diarrhea can be an adverse event associated with SSRIs, as can be nausea. I tend to use SNRIs for patients who also have coexisting anxiety or perhaps even depression. Consider that side effect profile of the therapies though that you're using. Start with a low dose and titrate slowly four to eight weeks and warn patients that these are not agents that work very, very quickly. Sometimes can take four to eight weeks to exert their maximal effect. If it is effective, then we generally recommend that patients be continued on therapy for six to 12 months. Longer therapy may be warranted in some patients, and it is important to gradually taper these therapies when they are discontinued. Let's talk about cognitive and physical retraining treatments for IBS and chronic constipation. And I wanna start with the concept of the pathophysiology and irritable bowel syndrome in particular with regards to a gut-brain dysregulation or interaction or disruption in that interaction. We believe that this may be partly 
responsible for the visceral hypersensitivity and visceral hyperalgesia that some of our patients with IBS can have. It manifests as their abdominal pain, perhaps their bloating. There may be also some alterations in the way that these patients process pain in the central nervous system. And cognitive behavioral therapy is an established therapy for patients with irritable bowel syndrome and other disorders of gut-brain interaction. This is a family of techniques that are, is aimed at modifying arousal. In some ways you can think of this as relaxation training or coping mechanisms. They consist of brief, highly structured, problem-focused and prescriptive therapies that focus on the present with little time spent on past experiences in terms of our patients' lives. The main assumption is that patients have specific skills deficits that render them vulnerable to the symptom exacerbations that they're experiencing with regards to their IBS symptoms in particular, and that formal instruction in terms of modifying or unlearning their maladaptive processing can help improve their symptoms. Generally, these are four to eight week sessions. Uh, there are four to eight sessions over 12 to 16 weeks. Might include some homework can be done in person, one-on-one -on -one, as a group, or even web-based or app-based. Gut-directed hypnotherapy is another extension of this type of psychological therapy that's also shown a significant benefit in some patients with irritable bowel syndrome, with diarrhea, or with constipation, or perhaps even patients with IBS-M. This is a form of therapy that is, calls for patients to train themselves to promote an altered consciousness or trance state and use uh, productive visualization techniques to help try to minimize their symptom impact. And finally, I want to talk about biofeedback therapy for patients with chronic constipation as well as IBS with constipation who we find have pelvic floor dysfunction. This is an often overlooked condition. Approximately 20 to 30% of patients with chronic constipation symptoms will have some contribution from a disordered pelvic floor mechanism. We find this by doing specific tests such as anal rectal manometry and balloon expulsion testing. What I do typically in my practice is when patients fail multiple different laxative therapies, I test them for disordered pelvic floor mechanisms. Other clinicians and experts will do this uh, right off the spot when they evaluate these patients. This is why the digital rectal exam is so important in patients because you can get an inkling that this may be present in some patients with chronic constipation symptoms, whether it's IBS-C or CIC. Biofeedback therapy basically is teaching patients how to defecate more effectively. It can be remarkably effective as you can see in 70% benefit compared to 8% in patients with so-called slow transit constipation. It can improve bowel movement frequency, it can improve uh, satisfaction with bowel movements, stool form as well. So don't overlook this concept, especially in patients who aren't responding appropriately to laxative therapies directed against constipation. So let's talk finally about patient-centered care with regards to IBS and CIC. What you see over on the left is our traditional model that we've used for years where either a primary care provider or a gastroenterologist are seeing these patients and they're walking alongside them trying to help them with their patients. And what I've tried to convey to you over the last uh, bit with regards to our presentation is that we're in an evolving world where we're, we're using our dietitians, we're using our psychology colleagues, we're using our physical therapy colleagues to help modulate and optimize the care of these patients. 
working together, but also working independently, and also working with our patients to improve their symptoms that they're experiencing with regards to their IBSC, IBSD, IBSM, and chronic idiopathic constipation. So what we're moving towards is very much of an integrated care model that's a team-based, collaborative, and multidisciplinary. And we expect to see better outcomes for our patients with this approach moving forward. So if you are interested in engaging in this type of approach with patients, we encourage you to use a patient-centered approach, asking open-ended questions, listening actively to your patients, sharing information and education with regards to these conditions, individualizing the treatment. I mentioned that every patient here is slightly different. And then also summarizing the visit for patients, making sure that they don't have any unanswered questions, displaying empathy, listening actively, uh, and really showing that you're engaged and understand these conditions as well as the impact that these conditions and symptoms are having on our patients. Now let's hear from Johanna again as she describes her journey toward a diagnosis and effective therapy for her IBS. Um, I saw a lot of different primary, well, I saw my primary care um, who really had no answers for me and referred me to an internist. I saw the internal medicine doctor and that encounter was pretty terrible. Um, that, that doctor um, asked me what I did. Um, did I work? Did I stay home? How many children did I have? How long had I been married? A lot of interesting questions that no one had asked me and I thought, well, maybe he's leading up to something. No, he told me that all of those um, things were contributing to my symptoms and that um, the fact that I was a working mom with two children and a husband and a stressful job was the reason for my symptoms and I needed to eliminate all of that and I would feel much better, which seemed pretty strange and very insulting. Um, he didn't make any correlation about the brain gut axis. He didn't give me a diagnosis. He didn't try to help me understand how stress was influencing my symptoms. Instead, he dismissed me. He made me feel like the symptoms were my fault because of the life that I was living and um, gave me no real options for management. So I, I left there in tears um, and had really no answers. And I had really just resolved to stop seeing doctors at that point. Every so often I would think, maybe, you know, it's been a few years, maybe I should try a new doctor, maybe there's something someone else might be able to tell me. Um, and then that encounter would end the same way with no answers, no recommendations, all the tests being normal, being told that it was psychiatric, that I was um, exaggerating my symptoms. There's no way I could be this functional and have that level of pain. Um, the, the stigma that I encountered was profound um, and I really started to believe that I was nothing more than my symptoms, that I was to blame for my symptoms and that there was just nothing anyone could do, that they maybe weren't even legitimate symptoms. I never had a diagnosis of IBS. No one ever said that to me. Um, and so I just didn't really know what to do. I sent him all of my records and he reviewed them before meeting with me and I went in to meet with him and I sat down um, in his exam room and he said to me, well, I've reviewed all of your records and I think I can help. And I was like, really? And he said, yeah, I, you know, I'd like to hear a little bit more about, about what's been going on and I'd like to do a physical exam, but I think I know what, what you have. And I was just like this like little glimmer of hope started to build in me. And I just thought, oh, gosh, that would be amazing. 
And then he began to ask me all sorts of questions about the impact of my symptoms. Of course, you know, the chronicity of them, the severity of them, but how did they affect me as a person, as a wife, as a mom, as a woman? Um, what were some of the, the worst parts? What made it better? Um, what, how was I eating? What was my diet like? All of these questions no one had ever asked me before in any other encounter with a physician. And then every time I would give him a response, he would be looking directly at me. He wasn't looking down. He was making a few notes, but he was, he was interested in what I was saying. He was engaged. His body um, communication showed me that he cared. And he would respond uh, uh, you know, with appropriate affirmation and empathy. Um, and I really felt comfortable telling him even more about the, the impact of what was going on. After the physical exam and um, some blood work that he had pre-ordered, he said to me, I know what you have. You have post-infection IBS with diarrhea, and I know we can, we can treat it. I know we can get you feeling better. And I was so excited because, I mean, no one wants to hear they have IBS with diarrhea, but everyone wants to hear they have a diagnosis that can be managed. And then we started talking about treatment. And he showed me different sorts of treatments that he would recommend, um, both to address the, the IBS and also to address the pain that at that point over 10 years had become widespread chronic pain, almost like a fibromyalgia. And so he talked to me about that and how that can happen in a lot of patients with IBS. Um, and we, he, he asked me what my thoughts were about the, the treatment, which no one had ever asked me before. They never you know, wanted my opinion about treatment before. And so we dialogued about that and he told me he wanted me to be really comfortable with the treatment that we decided on together. And if I had any questions or anything came up, um, he wanted to hear from me. And so we went ahead and started on the treatment plan and um, I would follow up every couple of months within about, well, I did one round of the medication that he had recommended for the IBS and um, one round was all I needed to resolve um, my diarrhea issues. The widespread pain and the abdominal pain was resolved within a year of the re recommended um, medication that, that we agreed upon together. And that was life-changing because, I mean, anyone who's had chronic pain knows that can really affect your personality. It can affect um, how you come across to others. It can affect your, your um, sleeping. It affects your energy level. It affects everything. And so to not have pain anymore and to wake up and be able to do the things you need to do and have the energy and the enthusiasm and not feel this crippling pain all of the time is world changing. So um, all in all, I, I can say now that I am in a tremendous place in terms of my health, I feel great. And it wasn't just the medications that made the difference for me. It was having a physician who took the time to listen who paid attention and engaged in the conversation, who asked questions about the impact of my symptoms on my life, and who provided empathy and support, who involved me in the decision-making process, who answered questions and was available whenever I needed. And that really was part of the therapy. That was probably just as important or more important than the medications that I took. 
So in conclusion, I think the major takeaways from this presentation are that IBS and CIC are common conditions that significantly impact our patient's quality of life. They can be relatively easily diagnosed using clinical criteria and some simple diagnostic testing. Furthermore, there's increasing evidence showing the value of integrative care with lifestyle modifications and increasing number of effective medical therapies and more accessible adjunctive therapies that can help our patients manage their symptoms more effectively. I thank you very much for your participation and your attention in today's program. This activity is certified by American Gastroenterological Association. This activity is developed in collaboration with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash CYP860. This activity is supported by an independent educational grant from AbbVie and Ironwood Pharmaceuticals.